0: Well, this morning we're going to be partaking of communion together, um, and so uh, just to make you aware of that, give you some, some warning for that. Um, if you need gluten-free elements, we actually have those at the soundboard back there, uh, but the uh, there's communion trays on the inside of each pew, and, and at the right time, those will be passed along, and so just to uh, make you aware of that. Um, if you would, uh, please, would you, would you dispose of your empties when you're done? That would be really, really helpful. Um, this last week, Melissa and I, uh, we were invited to uh, one of those, uh, the, the, those those places we have to dress up. There was a uh, an affair we were invited to, and it, it required us uh, to to get all fancied up. And I, had a, uh, I have a suit. I have I have one suit. I wear it maybe three times a year. Um, and so uh, uh, jumped in the suit, and uh, and we went to this uh, this this fancy party. And uh, and afterwards, um, sorry, I have gum in my mouth not appropriate. Okay. Uh, afterwards, how fancy I am, um, we, uh, we decided we're the nights young, we're dressed up, uh, my parents got the kids, so let's make a date night of it. And so we did. We, um, uh, we went to the Oregon district, uh, Melissa found a restaurant that looked pretty good, and so uh, we're walking up to the restaurant, and what we notice on the outside of the restaurant is, uh, is lots of banners and, and, and flags and signs and uh, there's, a, there's a Black Lives Matter banner there, and there's an LGBTQ uh, flag that's, that's, that's there, and then there's, there's two really large signs. One says pro-choice, 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 and the other one says uh, stand up for the rights of women and, uh, and make uh, abortion legal for all. And, and so we're, we're looking at, at all the signs in the window, and this is a restaurant. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that oftentimes, um, food can't just be food that food is accompanied with a message. That here is a, is a restaurant where the proprietors, they're, they're not just selling you meals, they're promoting an ideology, right? That, that around their table, there's a message that unites them, but it's a message that also builds walls. It's a message that, that uh, keeps some people in and safe, but it keeps other people out. It's a barrier. And we looked at the the front of this restaurant, and and what we saw is is basically the message that if you think the way that we think, welcome. If you don't, stay out. And that's the way it is is with with food. That's the way humans, we we always, we use food as a means of of fellowship, of of, of coming together with other people. Uh, Food is is not just about uh, the meal that you consume, it's about the meal you consume with, with people, it's like who you eat with matters, right? You know, uh, that's, that's the way it's always been. You, you look at our recent history, you, you go back 60 years in our country, and, and, and 60 years ago in certain parts of our country, you go up to a restaurant and you would see other signs in the window. No colors allowed, whites only. If you look like us, come on in. If you don't, stay out. An ideology around food There's a significance about the meals that we eat, especially when it comes to who we choose to eat with. We look at the book of Luke and we see the same thing. In fact, one commentator on the book of Luke said that in Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. He's always eating. And it's not to say that Jesus was a glutton But but it's referring to who Jesus ate with, that around this table, there was a fellowship, that that in the sharing of a meal, there was the opportunity for Jesus to teach, to demonstrate mercy, to love people around that table. Jesus is called the friend of sinners by the religious people, because at the beginning of Luke, we see Jesus eating with tax collectors and prostitutes people that, that the religious uh, parties would look at and say the, the, they're the dregs of society, they're the lowest of the low, they're sinners. That, that's a meal that they would not enter into even if they were invited. We see Jesus eating with this type of people and, and we would say to ourselves, that, that's applaudable because I'm a sinner too. Because, because I, I know that, that if Jesus ate with that kind of person, then he would eat with me, then he would find me acceptable. And we, we look at Jesus eating with tax collectors and, 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 and sinners and we're like, yes, that's good. But in, in Luke chapter 14, that's where we're at today. You could turn there now. Uh, Jesus is eating with, with those Pharisees. Jesus is eating with those religious people, those self-righteous, wealthy, religious people. And we look at that and we go, why? Why is Jesus eating with them? I mean, because they're the enemy. You think about it, the way that that they treated Jesus. Uh, At the end of Luke uh, 11 says this, as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him and to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Like here's a group of people that they don't want to hear Jesus because of his message. They don't want to embrace him as a friend. They don't want to love on him. They don't want to to, to be in partnership. Like they, they are inviting him in for a specific reason. And we see it at the beginning of chapter 14, verse one. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. We covered this in previous weeks, that, that this is a trap. They invite a man with edema into the party in hopes that Jesus will heal him and then they can say, aha, you worked on the Sabbath day. They want to discredit him. They want to destroy him. There is, there is enemies. And yet Jesus knows what their intent is, but he goes anyway. He goes in to the house of the Pharisees, anyway. Why? Because he loves them. You see, Jesus commanded us to love our enemies. But Jesus isn't a hypocrite. He demonstrates that same love. And here are his enemies who were really out to get him. And Jesus goes where they are, because he loves them. So this morning, uh, here's the plan. We're going to read uh, a part of this together, verses 15 through 24. I'm going to pray. Um, I'm going I'm to talk briefly about um, the importance of understanding culture, and then we'll dive into the passage deeper, okay? So let's begin reading verse 15 of Luke 14. When one of those reclined, who reclined with, at table with him heard these things, he said to him, <clears throat> Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said uh, to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you command has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet." Heavenly Father, I pray that in our time together this morning, you would um, remind us of how you came to us, how you are a missionary God who came to save. And because of who you are and because of what you've done, you have given us a new identity. And we are your missionary people, and we've been sent. But the reality is, many of us have not gone. And so I pray this morning that in our time together, you would point us to your son, to his example, to his love, and that we would be inspired by that to follow after. pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So uh, here's the the setup. Luke 14, Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee to eat a a meal, and we know that it's a trap. You think of all the uncomfortable parties you've ever been invited to. You've ever been invited to a dinner party and you just know because of who's there, this is going to be an uncomfortable time. Maybe that's every Thanksgiving for you, I don't know. But this is gonna be an uncomfortable meal. And it's uncomfortable because Jesus, he's being invited into the midst of the party. All eyes are on him to see if he's gonna disobey God's rules. And so they could say, aha, we got you. Jesus is invited in to to be discredited. He's at the center of this party and all eyes are on him. But because they wanna see him fail, they wanna see him fall, they wanna see him crumble. You ever been in a situation like that? You ever been in a work environment like that? where your coworkers wanted to see you fail. Uh, There was a a time I I worked in in grocery retail for for a while and uh, in management and there was this one store that I was in, I called it the Shark Tank. Uh, because the other assistant managers within that store, um, many of them, they were so anxious to climb the ladder and prove themselves that to your face, they were just as sweet as can be, but to your back, to the store manager, man, they ripped apart everything that you possibly done. It was a, it was a stressful, stressful work environment. It was like swimming with sharks. And, and this is what Jesus is doing. He's going into this dinner party and he's swimming with a bunch of sharks who are out to get him. This is the most uncomfortable dinner party. Why did he go? Here's our first point. Jesus was a missionary who went to his enemies. Jesus is a missionary who went to his enemies. If you look at at what God the Son did as he leaves his throne in heaven, as he comes down to us, he is being sent by the Father. He is coming to us, and he's coming into where we live, and he's gathering around our table. He's a missionary God. And and I want us to see that as we we look at this passage today because, because this is something that defines us and shapes us. You know, we believe that as Christians, we've been given these new identities because of who God is, because of what we find ourselves this having this family identity. We're family. We've been made a family. We have a new father, and we have this new older brother who brings us in, and we're brothers and sisters, and and Jesus tells us that this new family, it's about about knowing the will of God and and, and living it out, And, and that's what we're attempting to do as a family, to live out the will of God with one another. We're also servants. We see Jesus, he comes, and he says, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and we're not better than him. We follow after him. We, we, we serve our, our, our one another. We serve outside of these church walls. We serve our communities in the hopes that in serving, we demonstrate the mercy of God to people so that they might come and know him too. We serve, but we're also missionaries. Every single one of us. As the Father sent the Son, so He sends us. Every single one of us are missionaries. Missionaries are not people who go overseas. If you are a Christian, you are a missionary. You have been called to go and proclaim the gospel in, in starting with where you are to the ends of the earth. And I don't know how far God has put you in, or in sending you, but we at least start with where we are. Every one of us we are missionaries because we have a missionary God who's given us a missionary identity. And Jesus is gonna model this for us. So I wanna take a sort of a, a detour and I wanna talk about culture because the truth is, if we're missionaries, as any missionary will tell you, you have to understand the culture you're going to. We should understand the culture in which we live. Because by understanding the culture in which we live, we can engage it, and we can counter it with the gospel. Jesus demonstrates that here. Uh, Jesus is operating in in what uh, sociologists or missiologists call a shame-honor culture, or honor-shame culture. That's what Jesus is operating in. And and he's dealing within that culture, and he's bringing to light the things that they value in order to address them with the gospel. Jesus models that for us. And so it's helpful for us to understand culture, right? Worldviews. And so uh, we're going to talk about just two of them briefly. Sociologists and, and missiologists—they identify three. We'll just talk about two, beginning with the one in which we live. Most of us live in. Um, most of us live in what's called an innocence guilt framework. Right? We see the world through right and wrong. Right there is uh, there's a governing law which we uh, uh, attempt to adhere to, and that law is, is what governs what what's right and wrong. Um, there's a, uh, a an intercultural consulting company called Knowledge Works. They help corporations who have employees from different um, cultural backgrounds learn how to work together. And they talk about the innocence guilt culture in uh, this way. They say the innocence guilt cultural paradigm is held by people living with a strong sense of right and wrong. Absolute moral laws and presuppositions that all derive from internal and external moral compass points, personal conscience, religious standards, societal mores, and so forth. In other words, in this society, the law matters, and that determines what is right, right? Um One uh, missiologist, Jason Georges, he's, uh, he wrote a book called 3D Gospel ministry in guilt, fear, and shame cultures. He says, how the West operates, that's that innocence, guilt paradigm, how the West operates, individual rights are valued. Morality is based on right and wrong is defined by law. You have the right to your own opinions, your own beliefs, even your own path to happiness, as long as you don't break the law. But if you do, the only solution is to suffer punishment in proportion to your crime. Then he says this, most Western cultures are in a constant search for the solution to guilt. You think about it. You think about the people that you interact with on a daily basis, people who don't know Jesus. Most of those people are looking for a solution to their guilt. What's the solution? Know the culture so that you can embrace it or you can address it with the gospel. The solution is Jesus, who takes our guilt and imparts his righteousness. But then he talks about this honor-shame culture, is this, a this second day way of, of viewing the world. He says this, much of the, uh, the Middle East and Asia operates differently. Family and community are valued above everything else. Personal relationships, reputations, and social status are the primary motivators. Come from a good family, do good things in the community, follow the social norms, and you will have honor. But do something dishonorable, or have something dishonorable happen to you, and both you and your community will be shamed. As such, these cultures do their best to avoid shame. Avoiding shame. See, I bring this this up for two reasons. One, Jesus is addressing an honor-shame culture, and and it's helpful for us to engage this passage knowing what context Jesus is engaging in. Two, the second reason I bring it up is because more and more our culture is shifting towards an honor-shame culture. You see, this great big melting pot that we call the United States has brought in people from other cultures many people who hold to these honor-shame values. And that's why you see more and more in our culture a movement towards shaming people who don't follow cultural norms based on popular opinion rather than calling people to to definitive standards of right and wrong. Shaming people is the thing. Not not based on, on, on them breaking any rules, but based on breaking societal norms. More and more we see that, and it's helpful for us to understand that, that that's the culture that we engage. See, we understand the culture that we engage so that we can counter. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this, the, the reality that the, the gospel runs counter to the American dream. The American dream says, um, if you work hard enough, you can achieve anything that you want. You could save your life, so to speak. If you work hard enough, you, you, you can achieve it. The gospel says you can't do anything to save yourself. The gospel says you need Jesus to save you. Right? The, the American dream says, look within, find independence. The gospel says, look at him and find dependence on Jesus. It's a completely counter-cultural belief system. But see, the gospel, it it isn't just counter to the American dream. It's not just counter to to society in the West. It's it's counter to every single culture on the planet that's human. The gospel confronts it, and Jesus is going to confront these Pharisees at this meal with the gospel. And so, let's dive in. Let's look at verse 7. then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted so uh, in this passage jesus is going to tell three parables and this this is the first one um, this doesn't look like a normal parable to us because we don't see like a seed being cast or like a farmer, you know, going out to, to harvest or something like that. We don't see like a medical, metaphorical story being told. Jesus just says, here's a situation, you're invited to a wedding feast. So there's two parallels that, that mirror each other. This is the first one and the second one. That if you were to break them down and look at the language of them, they're almost identical and, and how they're laid out. They're meant to, to go parallel to, to one another. The first one, however, is about you being a guest. The second one is about you being a host. Okay? So in the first one, there needs to be some contextual explanation. A wedding feast in those days could last for days. Uh, depending on the, the wealth of the groom, whoever's getting married, they could last a very, very long time. Okay? Now, uh, a wedding feast, it wasn't just about a uh, lovely couple coming together and celebrating their union. In a society that functioned with, with honor and, and dishonor and shame as the as central sort of uh, way it, it addresses the world, uh, wedding feasts were an opportunity to uh, grow in social graces. It was an opportunity for you to elevate yourself in, in social standing. These were opportunities. You walk into a wedding feast and you would find out where you're sitting based on who's there, okay? So uh, wedding receptions in our time you go to a wedding reception, you're, you're assigned a place, right? It's on a board or it's, maybe it's on your invitation or something like that, but there's a table number and you're assigned a place. Um, and, and so you figure that out and, and that's where you go. Or it's open seating with the exception of like the head table, where the wedding party's sitting at or where, where you know, special family members are sitting at, right? But in this culture, finding your seat was a lot trickier. And in a shame honor culture, you've got to go into this party and you've got to mingle around the room and you've got to identify who's there. And you've got to see who's higher in social standing than you are. Who's lower in social standing than you are. And find the two people, the one who's just above you and the one who's just below you and find out where they're sitting and sit right between them. That's how you find out where you rank in this party. So Jesus is he's using this, this honor shame culture to bring about uh, a way for him to talk about the gospel. And he says this, this illustration. You go to this wedding party and, uh, and you look around the room. You do your due diligence, you walk around, and you find that you are the best guy in the room. You are the top lady in the room. You are the, you're the one that everybody else is looking up to. You're the one. And so it comes time to sit down and you go and you sit in the place of honor right next to the couple. And there you are the place of honor at the party because you're the big cheese. Everybody gets seated and then somebody else walks in. And Wouldn't you know it, they're better than you. They have a higher social standing in that culture than you do. And so the host comes over to you and says to you, you got to move. And it's not one of those environments where you can say, okay, everybody just scooch down a little. Everybody just shift to the left. And I'm, we'll just. No, no, no. You got to get up and you got to take the walk of the shame, walk to, to the back of the corner and sit down. You just got removed to the lowest place. You just got shifted. And here's Jesus' point. Exalt yourself and you'll be humbled. Humble yourself. And you'll be exalted. Now, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the gospel. You see, this is what he models. And you think about it, the God of the universe humbles himself to become human. Isn't if that's not enough. He, he, he humbles himself, he leaves his throne, he leaves his glory, he takes on flesh, and he comes and dwells among us, right? If that's not humbling enough, how does he come? Does he come wealthy? Does he come famous? Does he come you know, with, with power and authority and, and respect? And is he a king? Is he coming with all of this clout? Is he coming with all this social standing and honor? No. He comes, he's, he's born in a cave, he's laid in a feeding trough. He grows up in a backwater town in Palestine. He, he has no social standing. He spends most of his life working with his hands. He's a blue collar guy. He has no honor, he has no clout. He's nobody from nowhere. And he comes in and he sits at this table at the lowest place of humanity. And then he gets even lower than that because he goes to the cross goes to the cross, and he dies. He exchanges that humble life for ours. And what happens? God the Father raises him from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and even now, you see the difference? He was at the lowest of the low, and now he's at the highest of the high. Like, he's been exalted. Jesus is saying, humble yourself, and let him exalt you. Let him raise you up. He's proclaiming the gospel to them. He's proclaiming what he's come to do to them. So here's our second point Jesus was a missionary who took the lowest place in order to be exalted to the highest one. Is it the example that we follow? So Jesus tells another parable. Look at verse 12. Uh, this one mirrors the one we just uh, read. Um, uh, linguistically they, they, they marry each other almost perfectly the difference is, is in the first one you're the guest and the second one you're the host he said also to the man who had invited him when you give a dinner or a banquet do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid but when you give a feast invite the poor the crippled the lame the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." See, in an honor-shame culture, if you're going to throw a party, you you may invite someone who is a little bit lower on the social ladder than you are. You'll invite people who maybe are on the same rung as you, but you're definitely gonna invite people who are higher on the social order ladder than you are. Because a party is not a way of blessing people. A party is not a means of having fun. A party is a means of gaining in social cloud. It's it's a means of of, of growing your social standing. And so you invite the right people, right? You invite the right people. You you throw the right kind of party, and, 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 and it's in this kind of atmosphere that you could be elevated potentially. You honor those other people, and in return, they honor you. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Instead, reach down and honor the dishonorable. You see, in an honor-shame culture, if you're poor, or if you've got a physical ailment, something wrong with you, it's because you deserve it. It's because you're receiving some sort of divine judgment against you. You've shamed your family, or your family has done something shameful, so you deserve the position of dishonor in which you're in. In an honor-shame culture, you've gotten what it is that you deserve. Jesus is saying, invite those people in. And and he's actually praying on on their desire to be honored by saying, you want to be really honored? Then look to God to honor you. Do something that God recognizes as honorable. So reach down and lift up those below you. But you see, to do that in that culture, to invite this type of person into a party would mean that you would dishonor yourself. It would mean that you demean yourself. You lower in social standing. Here's what you say: Reach down. Elevate other people and accept dishonor for yourself. In an honor-shame culture, how do you think that that, that went down? What is Jesus saying here? He's explaining the gospel. This is what Jesus did. God takes on flesh. He comes down. He dishonors himself. Ultimately, he's ultimately dishonored at the cross, right? He faces a criminal's execution. Cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree, right? He goes and he hangs and he dies on the tree. And there, he who knew no sin became sin so that you might know the righteousness of God. That exchange is made. He embraces. He takes on everything that you and I have ever done in rebelliousness or disbelief or or, or what we've done against God. He took that on himself. He's dishonored the most of any human being that has ever lived. He's dishonored so that we could be elevated, so we could be raised up. You see, this is the gospel. He's telling them, do this, because this is what I'm doing. Third point, Jesus was a missionary who dishonored himself in order to bless others. Now, I said, there's there's three parables in this this passage. The first two, they don't seem like typical parables, but Luke calls them parables, so let's call them parables. The third one is more of of what we're used to seeing in terms of parable, parable, a metaphorical story. We read it at the beginning, but I want us to, to look at it again a little bit deeper. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. Still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet." Now, well, this needs a, a lot of cultural explanation, but it's interesting how it begins. There's this, this, this segue here where, where somebody's sitting next to Jesus, leans over to Jesus, and he says, blessed is the person who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Yeah, I mean, like think about it. If you're eating bread in the kingdom of God, is that a good thing? Okay. Uh, there's one uh, commentator who, who sort of helps us understand why this is in the passage. He says, as Luke often has it, Jesus' instruction is again interrupted by someone whose anonymity allows the spotlight to remain on Jesus and whose intruding statement becomes for Jesus a launching pad for further discussion. Here's somebody who leans over to Jesus and he says, blessed is the person who, who, who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus sort of, you know, he sort of leans over and he's like, oh, you think that's you? Let me tell you a story. So he launches into this parable. You know, whenever Luke incorporates somebody who doesn't have a name, who's sort of shouting from the sidelines a question or, or a comment or something like that, we're meant to see ourselves in that situation. So here's Jesus. He's leaning over, and he's talking to you and I and to the other men around these, this table. And he gives this story. Now, in those days, there wasn't email, text, phone, snail mail. If you wanted to throw a party and invite people, it required two stages. The first stage, you send your servants to those people who you wanted to invite. And they would go to them, and they would say, my master's throwing a party. Will you come? And they'll say yes, or they'll say no, but then they report back to the master. And they report to the master, okay, this person said that they would be there. This person said they wouldn't. But the master sort of looks at all this, and here's all the people that said that they're gonna come to my party. And so this is how much I need to provide. It's based on that number, that sort of RSVP, that, that he decides how many cattle he's gonna slaughter, like how much bread he's gonna need to bake, like how much provision does he need to, to make happen for this party. And then, once everything's prepared, once everything's done and it's ready, then he sends his servants out to go and get the guests. They go out and say, my master's house is ready, everything's prepared, come and feast. And they, they would sort of escort them to the party, right? This story is, is, is catching up with these people at the second invitation. In other words, the servants, they've already gone to these individuals, they've already asked them if they would come, they all said yes. And based on the fact that they said yes, the master has prepared something for them. But now, when the servants are going out to get them, to bring them to the party, now they're making up excuses. The first guy, he's a very wealthy individual. The context is someone who who needs to leave town in order to go and see land that he's purchased. It's a bad excuse. Land's not going anywhere. Visit it tomorrow. The second guy is one who has five yoke of oxen. Somebody who can afford five yoke of oxen probably has five servants who could tend those yoke of oxen, have them do it, go to the party. The third person, this is the one I love most. This is great. I can't come to the party. I just got married. Come on, that's funny. I mean, I I remember being a young man in college. I didn't get married until I was 27. But I watched... One by one, these guys bite the dust, right? They got married and, and I'm all for leaving and cleaving. Like that's important, right? But one by one, they got married and it's like they had no social life after that ever. So I can't, I can't hang out, I'm married, right? We can't be friends anymore, I'm married, you know? It's just, it's like, it, it, it's like they died almost, <laughs> right? I don't know how to explain. anyway, like, but again, I'm all for the leaving cleaning. But, but here's an excuse. It's an excuse. Bring your wife, man. Take her out to a party. I can't go, I'm married. So here he is, the, the, the third guy, the, the last final really, really horrible excuse. Servants come back, they relay everything to, to, to the, the master of the house, and he's angry. And You can imagine why, right? Have you, have you ever been to a, a, a wedding reception? And, and you're there, and you look around, and there's like a ton of tables and place settings and everything's like, and people aren't there. And you just know, like, there are people that RSVP'd, and now they're not showing up. And you can see the bride and the groom, and it's like, like they, they just, you know, shelled out a bunch of money for each one of those meals that now is just gonna go in the garbage. How sad is that? People who said, I'll be there, and they don't come. Right? It's offensive. And so, go out. Get the, get the poor and the lame and the cripples like the blind. The, the people that Jesus just talked about in the previous parable, go get those people. Bring them in. I want to bless somebody. I want somebody to eat this food. I want somebody to enjoy this party. And so they do, and, and there's still room. It says, okay, Go get the strangers. Go get the aliens, right? Go get the, 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 the guys passing on the highway. Flag them down. Invite them to my party. Like, go get those people who are far from home and bring them in. I want the house that's full. Now, there's two ways that we can interpret uh, this parable. The first and the most widely way it's interpreted is to see the, the master of the house who throws a banquet as God. And the banquet itself is this eschatological banquet. It's, it's, the, it's the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's Isaiah 25. It's what Jesus has talked about previously. It's like this banquet at the end of time. It's where people look at it. And, and so you could see, okay... Um, God initially invites the Jews to the table, right? He initially invites His people, the Israelites, and they make excuses and they don't come. And so, oh, he, he so he's going to lower the standard, he's going to lower the bar, so it's not Jews, it's you know other people who you know have whatever issues that are unclean or, or whatever, it, it, you know. what, And let's let's just invite the Gentiles into like last ditch messer. We still got room, and so bring on bring on the Gentiles. Let let them into the kingdom of heaven around my table. Now, there's there's problems with seeing it that way. And the first problem really is, is that it, it, it demeans God. It sort of basically says that you know, God had a plan for who's going to come and eat at his table, and that plan failed. And so he had to go to a backup plan, and he had to go to people that he didn't really intend to invite at the beginning, but now he's forced to. Right. And that's a negative view of, of God, and it's, it's a negative, negative view of, of, of his plan of redemption. We go all the way back to Genesis and we see that God did choose a family, but the Israelites were po- supposed to point the rest of the world to God so that through them, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, right? When we look at Luke, we see Jesus who intentionally goes to the poor and the powerless, not because he was rejected by the Pharisees first. This isn't a backup plan. So instead, I think the way that we're supposed to see this is this, this is Jesus offering a challenge to the guy that just asked the question. He's challenging the, the men at that table. He, he's, he's saying to them, you know, will you change? Will you hear what I have to say? Will you open your hearts? Will you open your doors? Will you open your tables? Will you embrace people you've never embraced before? Will you be humble? Are you willing to dishonor yourselves for a greater purpose? Um, Uh, again, uh, a quote from, from uh, Green. He says uh, that this is the, the, essentially the challenge. Will they live accordingly, according to an utterly transformed social order in which their practices as dinner hosts are oriented not toward the noble but toward the poor, not toward status maintenance or advancement but toward the implementation of a social order privileging an uncalculating generosity toward the poor? He's issuing this challenge to the people sitting at the table. Will you change? He's issuing that same challenge to us. And here's the last point that I want to make. Jesus was a missionary who made other missionaries. He's calling us to follow after him. He's calling us to do what he did. To love who he loves. To be missionaries like him. Jesus gives us an example in Luke 14 about what it looks like to be a missionary. And it's a picture of humbling, of dishonoring ourselves in order to elevate others. This is the picture of what it means to follow after Jesus. So for not doing that, why? Why are we not, many of us embracing a missionary identity? Why are we not following after Jesus in this way? I'm going to offer uh, three possible possibilities for us. As you look at your own heart, consider this, maybe the reason why we are not living lives as missionaries is because we desire ease and we fear difficulty. We desire ease and we fear difficulty. We, we live in a world that, that, that says you're supposed to have it easy that take all the shortcuts that are necessary in order to have an easy life. You should avoid complications, you should avoid pain, you should avoid difficulty. This is what our world teaches us. And it's become so entrenched in our lives. We, we look at those people. You know, you look at the people that, the, that Jesus ate with at the beginning of Luke, in Luke four, right? The, the, the sinners, the prostitutes, right, the, the tax collectors. And you might think, well, those are the hard people to reach that Jesus went to, and it's like, no. Not really, those people embraced Jesus, they accepted Jesus, they listened to Jesus. No, the hard people were the Pharisees, the self-righteous people, and yet Jesus went to them too. He chose the difficult people to go to in hopes that they might turn, that they might follow him, that they might become followers. He went to the hard ones too. I think we need to ask the question, that the Are there people that God has placed in our lives that are difficult, but we avoid proclaiming the gospel to them because they're difficult? Second possibility, we have a desire for approval and acceptance and a fear of disapproval and rejection. The reality is is that we care what the world thinks of us. We care that if we, we go and tell people who Jesus is, and what he's done for us and how that's changed us, that that, that that explanation, that proclamation is going to be met with disapproval and rejection when what we want is the world's approval. We want the world's acceptance. We want to be embraced by our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our families. Like We want these people to, to, to hold to us, not reject us. Third possibility is we desire honor and power. And we fear fear being dishonored or left powerless. If we go and we tell people about who Jesus is and what He's done and how that's changed us, are we are we going to be on the PTA or will will, will we not be allowed? Like, will they elect us? You know, to the to the you know the the housing. What do they call those things? You, groups of people who dictate what kind of things you can have in your lawn. Will they reject me and not allow me to be the president? When it comes to that promotion, will I lose it? Will it comes to, 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 to that, that, that raise? Will I not get it? Will, will people who know I'm a Christian think I'm just ignorant? That how could somebody in 2022 believe that there's only one God and there's only one way to get to that God? And how could be someone be so so judgmental and obtuse as that? Will people look at you and take away any honor you might have had or any power you might have had, because you must be a moron to believe this stuff. We fear. Losing that power and that honor because we want it really bad. And see, if, if you can identify with anything that I've just said, consider that all of those attitudes, those desires, those fears, that's fruit of a, of a rotten tree. And it's, it's not the fruit that needs to change, it's the tree that needs to change. It's your identity that needs to change. Because your identity is found in the approval, acceptance, and love of the world. It's a form of worship. It's a form of looking at the world and believing that it, to some degree, can save you. And it can't. You're looking to the world to shape your identity and make you who you are. And it will fail you. It will fail you. And the thing that you need to understand about this is that's not you loving the world. You know, that that coworker that you were able to, just so you know, that's not love. At least it's not loving them. It is loving you. It's loving yourself. But if you're rooted in Christ, if you'll find your identity in who he is and what he has done, if you're rooted in him, that changes your identity. And you see, from him, it it doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't matter if the world approves of you or not. You have his approval. You see, you bend the knee to him, not to the world. So where is your identity? We're gonna transition into a time of communion. And so, if the communion trays are in front of you, would you take them out, pass them down, Um, There are many reasons for not partaking of communion, so nobody's going to judge you if you let that go by you. But as we partake of communion this morning, I want you to hold these elements in your hand. They're really quite simple, aren't they? A little tiny wafer, a little bit of juice, and a little plastic container. Very, very simple. And yet, when you take them, you're proclaiming something much, much bigger. You're identifying with someone much, much bigger. Because that bread, it points to the, to the missional God, this missionary God who comes and gives his body for you. And When you drink that cup, that's pointing to the missional God who came and poured out his blood for you. You see, when you partake of, of communion, you say, I'm with him. I see what he's done for me. I see how he's changed me and he left his throne in heaven. He humbled himself. He dishonored himself in, in order to come and rescue me and now I've been changed. Now I've been saved but, but as he was sent, so he sends me and I'm a missionary too. You see, when you partake of that the, the, those simple little elements, you are making a profound statement. You are saying, I am a missionary because I have a missionary God. And he's called me to follow in his missionary footsteps. And it's an identity that we embrace and that we own. And so this morning, as we partake of communion together, if you're sitting with your family, or if you're sitting with members of your house church, I would ask you to, to, to spend time in, in with one another in dialogue about this question: Who is God sending you to break bread with today? Who should I be breaking bread with today? Is that a difficult table? Uh, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to leave you in some silence to ask that question, to dialogue with one another. But before we do, I do want to say this. Going back to the other night, Um, I told Melissa we were not going to eat at that restaurant. And I We walked across the street. And I realized, you know, it wasn't like I believe God was telling me I should eat at the restaurant. Just to be clear, I believe that we as Christians should enter places like that. I do. I didn't stay away from that because I felt like there was some line I shouldn't cross. The reason why we didn't go in is because... I wanted to choose an easier course. I wanted an easier way. I didn't want to go in and deal. I didn't want to go in and confront. I didn't want to go in, and, and even if God had ordained some sort of, you know, uh, just d- divine encounter with someone, I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go there. I wanted I want some simple food. And you see, that's a reflection of my heart. It's a reflection of my lack of love for the people in that restaurant. And I say that to you. I confess to God in front of you, that I am, a, I am somebody who gets up here and I tells you, I tell you, go and be mission. You're a missionary. And yet, I am just a chief of hypocrites. Because oftentimes, I don't go. And I don't stand up here and make excuses. I confess that before you, and I ask that you would pray for me as I pray for you. Heavenly Father, would you change our hearts to love what you love? Being missionaries is not about an obligation. Being missionaries comes from from hearts who have experienced your love and in a response of love want others to experience it. And the truth is is that when I'm lazy or when I'm fearful or when I want to make my name great and I'm not concerned with you it is in those moments that I have forgotten the grace that I've been given. I've forgotten the love that you've poured out on me and I'm willing to withhold it from others I pray that you forgive me and I pray that you change me I pray that you would make us a missionary people in the name of your son Jesus